from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. And welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Skartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit, or as one of my students is now calling me, Skortol. Uh, he's got obsessed with the whole thing. It's crazy. Uh, today is uh, Wednesday, the 25th of November, 2015. It's 11 a.m. Central Time, which means it's 12 noon Eastern Standard Time on the 25th of November. You know what that means? It means it's the Steam sale starting right now. I could be looking at Steam, but instead I'm doing this show. You better appreciate it. What up, dog? My dog has just come in here to say hello. I think he probably wants his lunch, but it's too early for lunch. Why are you yawning at me, dog? Where my dog's at? Right here, dog. He just hears me yelling, and he comes in to say, Hey, what's going on? What are you yelling about? I'm just doing the show, Tito. Flap, flap, flap. All right, see you later, pup. Anyway, uh, on this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started! A little bit better than dopey, a brand new kid to show biz. With knowledge, I persevere, but if I not do me a favor, favor. let me an ear, then we can find the rhyme to fill in space and drop the bass with a taste of light. Man, it's been a million years since I've done one of these, and I'm sorry for the delay, as always. But you know what? At least I'm doing it. One of the reasons I think I have a problem with doing these regular is because it becomes this huge thing, and I think of it as like, that's going to take up my whole Saturday. And as you may know, teaching is crazy stressful. And then when a Saturday comes, I'm like, I ain't trying to spend my entire afternoon talking into a microphone to nobody. Now, I know it's not talking to nobody, but right here and now, it's nobody except my dog who comes in to shake his head around. Anyway... Um, yeah, I'm committed to keeping this within an hour, so I'm going to move very quickly through everything. First of all, um, yeah, it's been crazy at school. We had this awesome writer from, she lives in London, she was born in Massachusetts, her family's from India, and her name is Tanuja Desai Idir, and she's awesome, and she wrote two books, one called Born Confused and one called Bombay Blues, and the book company sent me copies to thank me for hosting her in the high school and it was awesome and she's really cool and we're Facebook friends now so it's like what what anyway uh, then I took the students to a uh, writing conference at UW Whitewater which was also awesome and I saw Allie Johnson while I was there what up AJ and I went with Charlie Strader straight dog and uh, yeah that was fun but it was also exhausting and the bus broke down and it was crazy and yeah, then we watched Barton Fink and Creative Writing, and that was cool. But I don't know. I feel like my classes aren't as talkative as they used to be. So it used to be that on the day after we watched Barton Fink, we, I'd show them my presentation, and then we'd have all sorts of lively discussions. And it feels like now it's just they just sit there, and maybe a couple of them ask questions. But generally speaking, they're just like comatose. And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm being too straightforward with them. And in the past, I would toy with them more. But I don't know. I, I, I kind of feel like as the years go on, the students get more and more... Um, I don't know, dispassionate. It seems like students are so languid these days. 
And I know there's still creative ones in the mix, and there's still a lot of interesting discussions that we have, and I have a good time teaching still, but I just wish the classes were a little more lively. Now, it's always possible that I'm looking back on the older classes with rose-tinted glasses, and, and they weren't as lively as I remember, and I'm just remembering the best moments of those, but I don't know. Whatever. Who knows? You know? Uh, before we get to current events, I will also say that I could be playing Fallout 4 right now, people, because Fallout 4 is awesome! And I know a lot of the people listening to this are also playing Fallout 4, so you know what I'm talking about and yeah it's really good there's a lot that's in common with fallout 3 so that's a little interesting but i realized that they don't have the um the, the super mutants used to have these like centaur guard dog things and they were really weird and i missed them because they're not in fallout 4 now they have these things that basically look like dogs and i'm like i want the centaur dudes back so that was the revelation i had recently about fallout anyway we're running off course, so we better start talking about some current events. There's no good on Salvador, have you heard of Eastermore? Where are all the dolphins gone? Prisoner in this Lebanon, some people will sing this song. So the terrorist attacks happened in France, and a lot of people more intelligent and wise than myself have talked a lot about it and written a lot about it, and I don't have a whole lot to add to that discussion. I mean, you know, the problem that we face with ISIS is very similar to the problem we face with Al-Qaeda, and I wrote this big long thing on my blog. If you want to check it out, it's at fbesp.org, that's the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski.org, and uh, slash synapse, <clears throat> and uh yeah, it's, you know, I, it's called A Few Thoughts on Terrorism, War, and Motivation. And the main point I wanted to remind people about is that we are fighting an ideology. And if, say we were to somehow kill every single member of ISIS, that wouldn't necessarily take care of the problem because we originally thought we just needed to kill everybody in Al-Qaeda. And now, obviously, that's not enough, right? And it was never enough to begin with, right? Because there was always Laskar Jihad and Boko Haram and, you know, groups just like Al-Qaeda operating independent of Al-Qaeda. That's the way these groups function, is they're trying to replicate themselves and spread out like a virus. And so the question then is, okay, well, how do we fight an ideology? And the answer is, we can't... I mean, look, I'm not saying we shouldn't use a military strategy because, you know, look, we should get ISIS to release all the you know, women and men and children that it's holding, basically holding hostage. And it's doing a lot of horrible things, and ISIS sucks. But, I don't know, I mean, it, it, first of all, their viral efforts to replicate their ideology are the biggest threats to us in the West. Um, they don't pose an existential threat to us, but they pose a terrible threat of doing more terrorist attacks like we saw in France, and the ones that they probably stopped in Belgium. And that sort of thing has to be fought in terms of ideology. And here's the thing. The more we attack ISIS with flying robots and bombers and, you know, bombing their installations, the more we're going to kill innocent civilians along the way. And then the ISIS can claim that, look, they're killing innocent civilians, and this is the proof that we have to keep fighting these infidels. So I don't, I don't know that, you know... I, I'm not the type of person who says we should never use the U.S. military for anything, but I do think that, A, well, obviously we need more transparency about what's going on with these drone strikes, who's being killed, when do they take place, and um, how, what's the oversight, right? How do we, right now, we have to just trust them that they're only ever killing terrorists. And, you know, a lot of the independent journalism proves that that's just not the case. And on Democracy Now! recently, there was a really interesting discussion with uh, people who've piloted the drones. And they have basically stood up and said, not in our name, we're sick of doing this, we, 
they quit the military and at one point Amy Goodman asked them how much money they were being offered in order to reenlist and they told her you know forty thousand fifty thousand a hundred thousand dollars and they all turned it down and uh, yeah I think that's really brave of them to say you know what I'm not morally okay with what we're doing with these drones so I'm done so yeah I, you know I think that it's important for us to remember that these terrorist attacks are horrible tragedies no matter where they take place in the world. They're horrible tragedies in France, and they're horrible tragedies in Nigeria, as there was just a terrorist attack there. There was a horrible tragedy in Beirut. There was a terrorist attack in Israel, and there's terrorist attacks in Palestine. And we don't call them terrorist attacks. We call them, you know, Israel defending itself. But a lot of times they are, you know, bombing or shooting unarmed civilians so or people armed with rocks or whatever. Anyway, um, yeah, and it's important to let us, you know, grieve and feel the pain of the loss of life in all of those instances. Because I think it's so tempting, especially when we see this sort of thing every day, it's so tempting to have a glib attitude and be like, well, you know, that's just what happens in the world. Or, well, let me tell you what I think about the geopolitical realities of why these people do these things. And those things can be important to discuss. But <clears throat> I learned the hard way after September 11th that if you launch right into that, then you risk separating yourself from your own humanity and not recognizing that there's a horrible loss of life. And, and it gets trite to hear everybody over and over again say, well, it's a terrible loss of life, and you know, it's, it's a terrible thing that happened in France, and we should all come together, and we are all French today. Especially when people don't have that same attitude toward Beirut or Nigeria or wherever else terrorism takes place. But the point is that, you know, that sense of solidarity and empathy that people have toward Paris is a good thing. And we should let ourselves feel that same empathy and solidarity, even if we then say, okay, now, what about Beirut? What about Nigeria? What about other places where there's terrorism going on? So, yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't really have a lot more to say about that other than it sucks. And it makes me very sad to see this sort of violence happening. But uh, hopefully you've all seen the little video clip of the man explaining to his son about how the flowers are more powerful than the bombs. Because in a way, that's really true. You know, we fight an ideology not by bombing the people who have different ideologies, but by showing the viability of our ideology to the material well-being of people in other places. In other words, if we say, look, ISIS's ideology is wrong, or the ideology of the Taliban in Afghanistan is wrong, or the ideology of you know, Saddam Hussein is wrong in Iraq, and we're going to respond to that ideology by bombing them, and bombing Iraq, and bombing Afghanistan, and bombing ISIS, and bombing Syria, all we're teaching people is our ideology has the bigger bombs. And that doesn't, that's not how you win an ideology, ideological fight. You win an ideological fight by saying, look, we will bring a better outcome for the people who subscribe to our ideology. And that's tough because, how, you know, it takes a lot longer. But look, Malala Yousafzai isn't talking about we should spread education by bombing people who try to close down schools. We spread education by building more schools and making sure they're open. So... Don't get me wrong, it's not as simple as just build schools and that's the end of it. I understand that security is not that simple. But I do think that we can our, our efforts to bomb people into agreeing with us often backfire. All right, so moving on uh, from the Amazing Grace file, those of you who are just listening to the show for the first time now may not know that uh, I try to find stories where people show amazing kinds of grace and mercy, and uh, this is another one. Families of South Carolina church massacre victims offer forgiveness. Now, this is an old story, obviously, and this is, um, 
I, it shows you how long it's been since I've done one of these shows, but I still think this is an amazing show. Uh, this is from where? Where is this news source? Reuters. As the young white man charged with murdering nine people inside a historic black church in South Carolina stood blankly silent during a court hearing on Friday, relatives of slain worshipers addressed him one by one, offering tearful words of grief and forgiveness. Uh, one woman named Bethane Middleton Brown said her slain sister, Middleton Doctor, uh, would have urged love. I acknowledge that I am very angry, she said. She taught me that we are family that love built. We are the family that love built. Uh, we have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. And I think that's astounding. Now, Killer Mike from the rap group Run the Jewels went on Tavis Smiley, and he made a very good point that, you know, it's very easy to forgive people instantly and not demand anything for that forgiveness. But I would point out that a lot of people who have written about forgiveness, including um, there's a book called Amish Grace, which is about the nickel mines community in Pennsylvania where there was a school shooting, and also um, Forgiving the Dead Man Walking, and I can't remember who wrote that book, but it's an amazing book. Those people have often said, you know what, it doesn't matter if you get anything for your forgiveness, and in fact, it, it's it's irrelevant because forgiveness is often a way for the the victims of violence to cleanse themselves of the rage and, and misery that violence often inflicts on loved ones and sometimes um, the, the individuals themselves. So, um, whatever. I, I think that Killer Mike's points are, are valid and, and important for us to consider because, you know, when it comes to a community being victimized over and over again, as the black community often is, then there's a question for them to ask and for them to sort out amongst themselves because I'm not a member of the black community anymore. Not since, you know, 500,000 years of evolution. Um, for, for them to figure out, you know, yeah, look, like at what point do we just, um, are we being taken advantage of? Is our, is our mercy being taken for granted or whatever? And I think that's a really important point too because, you know, Martin Luther King's whole thing was, look, we're going to shame white people into acting right. And it basically worked. Um, but of course, the black power movements of the 60s and 70s were also very important to the progress we've made in the last 50 years as Americans. So, I don't know, there's a lot of things involved here, but I just think that's amazing. Whenever anyone can summon that kind of grace to forgive someone who's done something that horrible to someone they love, I think that's something that we can all learn from and appreciate and pay respect to and recognize that you know, in our day-to-day lives, when someone cuts us off in traffic, you know what, it's not that big a deal. This person forgave the person who killed her sister, and so maybe I can forgive this guy who cut me off in traffic, right? Let's talk about fracking! Uh, for those who don't know, fracking is another name for fracture, uh, hydraulic fracturing, which is where oil companies drill into the earth and go a mile down, and they pump a whole lot of weird chemicals that they don't tell us which ones they are into the water, and then they pump out a lot of water, and there's wastewater, and it often gets into the water, and there's a lot of crazy stuff going on with fracking. I've talked about it a lot in the past. Fracking jobs encouraged American teens to become high school dropouts. This is from Bloomberg News. That burst of employment generated by fracking in the last decade may not have been all good news for the U.S. Jobs offering low-skilled American American teenagers, a chance to earn big bucks in the shale oil and gas industry, also made it less attractive to finish high school, causing a jump in dropout rates, a new study showed. It was published this month, probably six months ago, uh, by the National Bureau of Economic Research. The sobering takeaway, fracking raises the risk that some workers at the bottom of the skills and education ladder may end up being stuck there because they made bad schooling choices in a rush to be part of the industry, according to Elizabeth Kaskio and Ayushi Narayan, the study's authors. Now, one thing I'll say is that it used to be that if you graduated from high school, even if you didn't get a college degree, you could still find a decent, well-paying job. And I think that anybody who wants to work 40 hours a week should be able to get a decent wage and, and not be in poverty and have a good job. 
So there's obviously a balancing act to be done here. We don't want kids dropping out of school just to get these jobs, but we also don't want to demand that everybody go to college, although we should make it available for everyone who wants to go to college. So there's always an interplay, and I see this a lot because I'm a high school English teacher. You know, there's an interplay between what students want and what society tells them to push for because we can often say, like, do whatever you want, kids, and then sometimes young people will make some really dumb decisions, sometimes that, you know, reverberate for the rest of their lives. Now, I would say that a good society is one that doesn't demand that the things we choose when we're 18 are the things that affect us when we're 40, but sometimes it just bees like that. Anyway, uh, does fracking reduce sperm count? Uh-oh. Dun-dun-dun. This is from psmag.com. What's psmag? Opening the link. Pacific Standard. Uh-huh. Anyway, uh, attention men, you might want to move far, far away from any fracking sites. A new study published in the journal Endocrinology shows that male mice exposed to fracking chemicals have lower sperm counts in adulthood. Quote, this study is the first to demonstrate that endocrine disrupting chemicals, or EDCs, commonly used in fracking at levels realistic for human and animal exposure in these regions can have an adverse effect on the reproductive health of mice, wrote the study's lead author, University of Missouri Professor Susan C. Nagel, in a press release. These findings may have implications for the fertility of men living in regions with dense oil and or natural gas production. Well, there's a lot of this stuff going on in Texas. Maybe that means we'll have fewer kids born to people in Texas. Heyo! No, there's lots of lovely people in Texas. I, I'm joking. I kid because I love. That's the thing you can say whenever anybody gets mad. First of all, you just say I'm joking, and then everybody has to instantly stop being mad. No matter what you say, you just say I'm joking. Everyone's like, oh, I can't be mad. Uh, but if they still aren't mad when you say you're joking, then you say I kid because I love, and then they have to get, forgive you and move on. To bypass trade secrets that allow oil and gas companies to refrain from disclosing fracking chemicals. Hey, I was just talking about that, man. Researchers instead tested wastewater samples from fracking sites in Garfield County, Colorado. Using the 16 chemicals they identified in those samples, in addition to existing literature on fracking, Nagel and her team created a mixture of 23 different fracking chemicals. That concoction was then administered to mice throughout the course of their pregnancy so that researchers could observe the effects on their male babies. The mixture mirrored chemical levels that humans are are likely exposed to from wastewater or drinking water contaminated with fracking fluids. Oh, those poor mice! I'm channeling Linda Belcher from Bob's Burgers. What did the mice do? They didn't do anything wrong. Why are you feeding them chemicals? You nasty researchers. Take that. Take that. She's punching the screen of the article. Stupid researchers trying to poison baby mice. It's so cute. With the little pink noses. All right, that's all the current events. We should talk about economics. See, we're moving so fast here. But you know what? That song makes me sad because I am currently working on a Wu-Tang Clan cross-stitch because I've been crazy into cross-stitch. I would imagine people who haven't listened to the veteran gamers and don't haven't been keeping up on my Facebook feed, if this is the only news you get of me, you don't know about my crazy cross-stitch obsession. This summer, I was like, damn it, I'm going to learn how to cross-stitch. And I did, and I'm awesome at it. And I made a Skyrim cross-stitch, and I made a, a Watchmen cross-stitch for my friend from college, and I made a, a, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles cross-stitch for my nephew 
and I made a chicken cross stitch for the Duchess, and I made an awesome books cross stitch for my best friend from high school, and I'm working on a Wu-Tang cross stitch now, but here's the thing. The first cross stitch thing I ever did, I got a kit, and it was like, I, you know what? The kit was the trial by fire, because the kit had like all this complicated stuff in it, and it was like, oh, now you had like bright orange, dark orange, and medium orange, and then regular orange, and it was like, how do you tell which orange is which? And it was it's kind of the stupidest way I could have learned how to cross stitch. If I just bought, I already had regular black thread. I could have just learned how to do it with the regular black thread. I didn't need to bother with that kit. Anyway, the point is that the kit, the kit came with a whole bunch of special colored floss. And then I went out and got like a starter kit of floss for general colors because I wanted to do my own designs. But the problem is this. I had gold colored floss from the kit and I started using that for my Wu-Tang Clan logo because their logo is gold. So I'm doing it. It's awesome. I get about a third of the way done and then I run out of that gold floss. So I take it to the shop, the craft shop store, and I know this isn't about economics, sorry. But anyway, so I get to the craft shop store, and I have my Wu-Tang thing with me, and I'm holding it up to all the gold floss they have, and I'm like, this one looks about the same. So I buy it, and I get home, and I start flossing, I start stitching, and I realize, ah, it's not exactly the same, and it's going to be noticeable. You're going to be able to tell that halfway through the Wu-Tang logo, uh, it's a different color. And I'm not doing that. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right, damn it. So now I have to undo all those stitches of the first third of the Wu-Tang logo. Now, here's the thing. I don't have to totally undo it all because I went around and did the outline of the Wu-Tang logo first, which is good because it means that it's not... Like, I have the outline and I can just use that. It can be one color for the outline and then I'll fill it in with the other color. And that'll be... I think it'll be noticeable. I will certainly notice it. But at least I won't have to start all over from scratch. So it's going to be frustrating, but it's not the end of the world. Everybody can calm down. All right, moving on with the economics. Um, Fortune Magazine. Oh, this is a good story. This tells us a lot about how capitalism works. Well, here's why Apple lost $60 billion after record iPhone sales. I'm always talking about this trend, and here we go. You'd think 60 billion, uh, record iPhone sales, that would get Apple a lot of profit share, right? Wrong. Over the last three months, and again, this is from six months ago, so it's probably nine months. Uh, over the la- but over the last three months, when the article was written, Apple grew its revenues by 33%, saw its profits increase by 38% to 10.7 billion, put away more than 202 billion dollars in cash for a rainy day, and yet lost more than 60 billion dollars in market value in just three minutes on Tuesday. Casual observers might be scratching their heads at news that at first glance would suggest that the world's biggest tech company had a bad day. Despite releasing earnings, many companies will be proud to call their own. Quote, Apple iPhone sales up 35%, comma, disappoint investors was the Wall Street Journal's initial headline. And the New York Times blared, Apple profit up 38%, but iPhone sales disappoint Wall Street. The reason for this initially mind-boggling disparity? Expectations. Before companies like Apple release their latest earnings reports, analysts try to guess what these numbers might reveal. These analysts, typically employed by brokerage firms, are tasked with providing accurate assessments for investors who want to know if they should buy more stock, hold their current position, or sell their shares. Analysts' forecasts are then called together to produce a consensus earnings estimate for a company. If a company beats these estimates, it usually portends good fortune for their market value as investors flock to buy up stock of the company. If the company fails to meet expectations, however, market sentiment shifts against them, sometimes resulting in a sell-off like the one we saw in after-hours Apple trading Tuesday evening. In other words, to put this into human language, you, 
it's not enough for a company to make profits. You have to keep making more and more profits in an unexpected way so that you beat expectations. It's insane. This isn't this isn't sustainable. It's not sustainable if you just have to keep making more and more profit. That's one thing. But to keep having to beat the expectations of how many profits you're going to make, that's just lunacy. And this is all the financial industry. This has nothing to do with making things. This has nothing to do with the health of a company. This has to do with you know, the, the guy at the casino says, I'll bet he's going to roll 11 six times in a row. And if you only roll 11 five times in a row, everyone's like, you suck. You didn't roll 11 enough. And it's insane. It, this is why Wall Street is a casino, and it makes me sick. Moving on, uh, the New York Times had an interesting article called The Good Jobs Strategy. And this is about a 40-year-old adjunct associate professor at the Sloan School of Management at MIT named Zainep Tan, who studied the shortcomings of short-sighted business practices of paying minimum wage and no benefits. And so he's arguing maybe we should pay people more and give them benefits. It's good for a company in the long run, he says. Here's what he says. While most companies were very good at getting products from, say, China to their stores. Oh, this is an article about this person, uh, Zainep Tan. Uh, it's a woman. Uh, and while most companies were very good at getting products from, say, China to their stores, it was a different story once the merchandise arrived. Sometimes a product stayed in the back room instead of making it to a shelf where a customer could buy it. Or it was in the wrong place. Special in-store promotions weren't being executed a surprisingly high percentage of the time. She saw this pattern in company after company. As she took a closer look, Tan says, she realized that the problem was that these companies viewed their employees, quote, as a cost they had tried to minimize, end quote. Workers were not just poorly paid, but poorly trained. They often didn't know their schedule until the last moment. Morale was low and turnover was high. Customer service was largely non-existent. Yet, when she asked executives at these companies why they put up with this pattern, she was told that the only way they could guarantee low prices was to operate with employees who were paid as little as possible, because labor was such a big part of their overhead. The problems that resulted were an unavoidable byproduct of a low-price business model. End of the quote of the article. So, and we see this all the time. Anywhere we go, you go to Target, you go to Taco Bell, you go to Tesco, I imagine, in the UK... People are working just barely hard enough to not get fired and just, um, you know, but no, but the companies just pay them barely enough to make them not quit. And it's a, it's a recipe for bad service. I'm always amazed when people get mad at someone at Taco Bell for not being perfect with the order or not being fast enough. I'm like, do you have any idea what this person's job is like? You should be so grateful that this person's putting up with this kind of nonsense just so you can eat a burrito for 99 cents. It's insane. And as the article points out, it's not even good business practice. Uh, yeah, so Hillary Clinton, oh my God. So the presidential election, oh man, I haven't even talked about all this. Feel the burn, feel the burn. Mike, uh, Killer Mike, I was just talking about him. Uh, Killer Mike gave a really cool introduction to Bernie Sanders. You know what? I'm going to play a little bit right now. Now, I know this is the part where usually it's a black minister in front of you, and usually you get all warm and cozy inside, and usually you hear about, I have a dream, and us holding hands and going for ice cream. That's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to talk about um, benevolent politicians that are going to come and save the day for you. I'm not here to talk about a dream that we think is unattainable so we settle for less. I'm not here to talk about a utopian society where everyone is forgiven and no one has to pay for past debts. I'm talking about what I'm talking about today 
is the Martin King post the Washington March. Martin King present the war on poverty. Martin King against the war machine that uses your sons and your nephews to go to other lands and murder. I'm talking about a revolutionary. I have no time in my short 40 years on this earth to relive the Reagan years. I have no time. I have I have no no desire to see us elect our own Margaret Thatcher. I am here as a proponent for a political revolution that says health care is a right of every citizen. I'm here because working class and poor people deserve a chance at economic freedom. And yes, if you work 40 hours a week, you should not be in poverty. That's why I'm here. I didn't come here to lollygag because I rap. This could be y'all last time seeing me because I got tours to go on. I got jets to fly on and I ain't lying on. But while I'm here, I have to tell you that in my heart of hearts, in my heart of hearts, I truly believe that Senator Bernie Sanders is the right man to lead this country. And I believe it because he, I believe it because he, unlike any other candidate, said, I would like to restore the Voter Rights Act. He, unlike any other candidate, said, I wish to end this illegal war on drugs that disproportionately targets minorities and poor. <laughs> Unlike any other candidate in my life, he says that education should be free for every citizen of this country. So, I mean, man, that's so, it's mind-blowing. Because Killer Mike, I've talked about Run the Jewels on this show before, he's deep. Killer Mike is not a friend of politicians. He is I've never heard him endorse or even talk positively about any politician ever. So for him to come out and endorse Bernie Sanders is a big deal to me. And I'm just really happy about the fact that he stood up for Bernie and I hope that helps Bernie out cuz I would love to see Bernie Sanders as a uh, candidate there. Um I'd love to see him be president. What am I talking? About? I'd love to see him as a candidate. He is a candidate moron. Anyway, here's the news story that got me on that whole train of thought. Hillary Clinton has called out high frequency traders on the trail. Now she's fundraising with one. Now, I should say this. The best moment of the first Democratic debate was when they were asking about Wall Street and Bernie Sanders went off and he made a lot of really good points about policy and why we need a new glass steagle and blah blah blah. Uh and <laughs> Hillary Clinton said, oh, I went to Wall Street and I told them, knock it off. And everyone's like, what? Are you kidding me? I went there and told them to knock it off? Are you on drugs, Hillary Clinton? What are you talking about? And that's a little, I mean, I don't know. Killer Mike said, we don't need another Margaret Thatcher. And I'm like, damn, that's kind of cold. Now, I don't know that that's an unfair uh, way of describing Hillary Clinton because in terms of policy, Hillary Clinton's uh, views are pretty similar to Margaret Thatcher. And she seems like she's trying to just coast on the fact that I'm a woman and you should elect a woman president, which we should, but just not that woman. We should elect Elizabeth Warren or Brooks Lee Bourne or uh, Tammy Baldwin president. Those are women I'd vote for. Anyway, Hillary Clinton is fundraising with a high-frequency trader. Interesting. Hillary Clinton, what is this from? What source are you using? Nationaljournal.com. Hillary Clinton used her big economic policy rollout last week to, in part, call out high-frequency trading, which she argues could pose serious risks to the economy. She's not wrong. 
Uh, but that hasn't stopped her from accepting money from the industry or doing so in the future. During Monday's speech, the former Secretary of State mentioned the practice twice, warning about threats from, quote, institutions in the so-called shadow banking system, including hedge funds, high-frequency traders, non-bank finance companies, so many new kinds of entities which receive little oversight at all, end quote. Clinton also mentioned high-frequency trading as a matter of market safety. Quote, over the course of this campaign, I will offer plans to rein in excessive risks on Wall Street and ensure that stock markets work for everyday investors, not just high-frequency traders and those with best or fastest connections, Clinton said. Here's the thing, out of the article for a second. She doesn't at any point talk about the needs of the American people as a whole, even those of us who haven't invested in the stock market. And I know that when we talk about everyday investors, she's also talking about pensions and, you know, municipalities that have invested in various ways in the stock market. But you know what? A lot of Americans aren't even invested that way. But we still have a stake in what Wall Street does. And Wall Street still is responsible to everybody in the country, whether we're actually investing directly, indirectly or not at all. Back to the article. Uh, Despite Clinton's talk about the practice's problems, Clinton will have a fundraiser Tuesday at the Chicago home of Raj Fernando, who founded Chopper Trading, a high-frequency trading firm that was purchased this year by the DRW Trading Group. David Walsh, who works with DRW, told National Journal that Fernando is not affiliated with the group. Repeated requests for a response from Fernando through his assistant were not returned. Fernando is a longtime Clinton donor. In 2014, he donated $5,000 to what was then known as Ready for Hillary, established to prepare for a Clinton candidacy, and he also donated to Clinton's 2008 run for president. A search of the Federal Election Commission's website showed that Clinton received 18 donations from people affiliated with Chopper Trading dating back to 2005. In addition, a search of donors to the Clinton Foundation found that Fernando gave between $500,001 to $1 million, and the website indicates he gave as recently as last year. So Hillary Clinton, don't believe the hype about Hillary Clinton fighting against high-frequency trading. She's being bankrolled by high-frequency trader, and I don't trust her. None of it. Let's move on to education. Look how fast we're moving through all this. We are going to get done within an hour. What, what? I can go back to Fallout 4. Yeah. Uh, a venture capitalist searches for the purpose of school. Here's what he found. This is a really interesting article. Now, a lot of people that... It was so funny. This was posted on the uh, education Reddit, r slash education, and people went furious. They hated this guy. He was like... They were like, oh, he's bad-mouthing memorization, but you know what? Sometimes you have to memorize things and blah, 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 blah. I think they missed the point he was making because I was reading it, and the whole time I'm like, yes, 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 yes. I agree with this guy 100%. Not everything he says, but 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 the points he's making are so good and so valuable. So it's a really good article. You should read the whole thing. This is going to be one of the top three. Um, and it's it's all about he 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 followed you know his son was in school and he had to you know do some project or problem and he did it a different way from what the teacher wanted and he got the right answer but the teacher was like you have to do it this way and he lost a whole lot of points and his son was discouraged by that as he should be. Because instead of encouraging creative thinking, the school is trying to, you know, limit his thinking and get him to, you know, formalize his thinking and restrict his creativity. And that's the biggest problem I see in education today is that school does so much to drain the fun of learning out of kids because we have to get them ready for these standardized tests. And so then I get kids in high school who hate school and they hate learning and they hate reading and they hate you know, making stuff up and they never, they don't like writing and it's just sucks because that's not what kids are like when they're young. When kids are young, they love reading, they love writing, they love making stuff up, they love, you know, school is fun.
fun at first, and then we drain it out of them. So anyway, this guy's asking the question, what is school for? Okay. And anyway, I'm just going to quote two paragraphs, but like I said, you should read the whole thing. The most innovative country on the planet is blowing it. As we move full swing into an era of innovation, the United States should be educating to our creative strengths, but instead we're eroding the very characteristics that will enable our kids to thrive. We're setting kids up for a life without passion, purpose, or meaningful employment. Heck yes! We have wrapped up our schools in rote memorization, low-level testing, and misguided accountability, preventing them from achieving any real purpose. It is a fool's errand to debate whether students are better off memorizing and forgetting Plato's categorization of the three parts of a human soul, the quadratic equation, or the definition of the cost of goods sold. If classroom learning is a mirage, it doesn't matter whether it's based on the Odyssey, a biology textbook, AP history flashcards, or a phone book. And I couldn't agree more. And this is part of the problem. Look, education in the United States has always been a battle, and I'm sure it's true in other countries. It's always been a battle between what business wants and what human beings need. And I don't go into school every day to try to educate kids so that they'll be ready to work in a boring office environment in order to make a corporation lots of money. That's not why I go into school. I'm trying to help kids understand what it means to be human and to explore the world around them and to really get the most out of it and to, to, to find joy and meaning and purpose in life. And when I have students who come with me to meet with U.S. Representative Mark Pocan to talk about human rights, I feel like I've won as a teacher because I've convinced them to play a role in how their world functions and to do their homework and speak eloquently, Mark Pocan said, you, you folks are so eloquent. And I was just like, yeah, that's right, my students are eloquent. Now, I didn't have a lot to do with that. I mean, we tend to attract people who are already pretty eloquent, but I see my purpose in the classroom as helping kids do a lot more than just find a job. So whatever. Um, yeah, that's a good article. You should totally read it. Uh, moving on, Diane Ravitch on the education bill making its way through the Congress. So I don't think this is actually happening because I haven't heard much about it recently, but maybe it is and I just don't know. Uh, so there's this, uh, okay, so the Senate has this Every Child Achieves Act because every once in a while the U.S. Congress decides it needs to make education better in this country. And the way they do that is never through more funding, hiring more teachers, and demanding smaller classes. It's always more accountability, more accountability, more accountability. So we saw this with No Child Left Behind. We saw it with the race to the top. And now the architects of those plans, I mean, Diane Ravitch is one of the architects of No Child Left Behind, or one of the main proponents of it. And then Arnie Duncan was one of the main architects of Race to the Top. He was the uh, architect of it. And then they he, they always come back later and they go, uh, maybe we put too much emphasis on test scores. Uh, maybe this isn't the best way to go. How about this? Next time you want to start changing the way education runs in this country, people, ask some goddamn teachers. Anyway, uh, so this Every Child Achieves Act was trying to get through, and there was a Murphy Amendment that was trying to get pushed by Democrats. And here's what the article says. What is this from? This is, I think, from Diane Ravitch's blog. Yeah. One of the key amendments to the Senate Every Child Achieves Act was called the Murphy Amendment. It failed. It would have revived or worsened the punishments of No Child Left Behind. Its main supporters were Democrats. Mercedes Schneider describes this amendment and others in this post, and blog post that that person wrote. Uh, Schneider writes, quote, Senator Murphy's Amendment 2241, which Warren co-sponsored, went up for a vote and was rejected 43 to 54. The 12-page text of Murphy's essay 2241 reads more like No Child Left Behind with its detailed prescription for reporting on student test results for, quote, meaningfully differentiating among all public schools, i.e. grading schools, including publicly identifying the lowest 5% and among interventions, potentially firing staff and offering students the option to transfer to other schools and using part of the budget to pay for the transportation. 
transportation, end quote. This amendment would have enacted tough federal mandated accountability akin to setting up an achievement school district in every state. Almost every Democrat, including Tammy Baldwin, voted yes. Almost every Republican, including Ron Johnson, voted no. Now, I'm adding that because I went to look up where the Wisconsin Senate uh, fell on this. And it sucks that Tammy Baldwin voted yes on that because, you know what? Look, I, I mean, the, education always comes down to this whole, like, you know, oh, kids who have to go to crappy schools deserve an option. They shouldn't have to go to a crappy school. And I agree with that. But the answer is to make the school less crappy, not to close that school or to let the kids who have the wherewithal or the initiative or the resources to leave the school. So it's not that uh, we disagree about the nature of the problem. We disagree about how to fix it. And I get a little tired of people saying like, well, there's nothing you can do if a school sucks. It just sucks. Because a lot of times people say, well, we're going to throw more money at it. And I went to a really cool workshop one time with this guy who said, yeah, everyone always says oh, we can't fix education by throwing more money at it. I say, let's give it a try because we haven't really tried that. Now, that's a bit rich when you look at how much money we've, you know, some schools that have really low performing test scores and stuff, you know, they spend $20,000 a year per student or whatever. Like they spend a lot of money on each student. But the point is that schools in high poverty areas need a lot of money to make up for all the things their students don't have. And the point is that, look, if you look at schools where kids are doing really well, generally speaking, those are in pretty wealthy areas because schools in the United States are based on property taxes for their funding. And so when we, if we were to look at the money that parents spend on getting kids to a place where they have high test scores, then the spending per pupil would be astronomical in those schools. But we don't look at it that way. We look at it as, well, the government's spending all this money and these kids are still stupid. Now, first of all, there's lots of different kinds of intelligence, blah, blah, blah. I don't like calling kids stupid because I've some of the kids with the worst grades are really sharp and really, you know, they're smart in many ways. It's just that they don't apply themselves in school or they think, as the coup says, if that fake out-of-date stuff wasn't in my way, ask me anything on where I'm from, I bet I get an A. So, you know, they're, 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 but the point is that we, if we harnessed all the money we spend as a nation on education and distributed it equally, private and public, there's no question we could raise the test scores of kids in the south side of Chicago or in Brooklyn or Compton or wherever. It's just that we don't make the, pri- the education of those poor kids a priority. We don't give them the, the resources they need to do well. And I'm not just talking about classrooms, right? Because if you try to fix what's in the classroom if the research that the U.S. Department of Education has done can be believed, only 10% of the fluctuation in test scores has to do with what goes on in the classroom. 90% of it is other stuff going on around them. You could put a kid in my classroom and I'm the greatest teacher who's ever lived. (coughs) And that kid can only, you know, he'll do better, but he's only going to get so far because he's already had 15 years of never being read to and believing that he doesn't have a future and watching his brother disappear or get shot in front of him, which I've had kids who've experienced both of those, uh, or, you know, grown up in poverty or been in abusive situations or what, I mean, you know, name a thing. So we can't look at education as just being like, teachers, fix these kids, because that's not how it works. 
Um, Diane Ravitch had another thing about the Murphy Amendment in which Democrats want tough accountability. Democrats have almost completely, this is Diane Ravitch speaking, Democrats have now almost completely bought into the assumption that more testing equals more equity when it is well-established fact that standardized tests always have a disparate impact that disadvantages students and adults of color. For many decades, the same civil rights groups that now defend standardized tests for students have litigated to block the use of standardized tests as decisive measures, whether in school or employment, etc., 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 moving ahead with the article. If standardized tests could meet the needs of children of color and children in poverty, these children would be in far better shape today than they are because they have been taking standardized tests every year since 2003 when NCLB was implemented. That's an entire generation of children. What are the results? Where are the benefits of the billions spent to test every child every year? Now, this is not Diane Ravitch being willfully ignorant and saying, well, she's not just some person behind a computer screen like me who says, I haven't seen the results of this. She's an education policy researcher. That's what she's done. She has a PhD in this stuff. So when she says there's no evidence to back up this claim that tests equal better results, she knows what she's talking about. And she's insisting that this is a backwards... And it's sort of like the uh, Republicans in Congress say, if you cut off the tax inflow for the U.S. government, then we'll spend less. But you have to start by cutting off the... You know, it's the same sort of thinking. Because the point is, of course, that never happens, right? We never end up actually spending cutting spending, especially when so much of our spending goes for military boondoggles for Halliburton. Uh-oh, we only have 15 minutes left. i got to finish making this point. It's just like with the global economic system. People say, well, if you have free markets, then uh, growing, uh, rising tide lifts all boats. But the point is, of course, the people at the top end up amassing most of the wealth, and it never trickles down to the people at the bottom. Same is true about testing in schools. You keep saying, we got to keep testing the kids, keep testing the kids, keep testing the kids, and then we'll, it'll help them do better. It doesn't work that way. We just end up giving them test anxiety and showing how horrible they're doing on all this work. And meanwhile, the root of the problem for each kid, which is often going to be different from kid to kid, it doesn't end up being, uh, you know, we don't have a result that's better because we just keep getting stuck on, this school sucks, fire these teachers, close this school, blah. And then there's no better outcome at the end of it. Meanwhile, one of the worst things that happens because of these standardized tests is that people have all this pressure put on them, and in some cases it costs people's lives. The headline here, uh, this is from the Washington Post, Harlem principal who committed suicide admitted that she cheated on state exams, officials say. A New York City principal who died earlier this year when she jumped in front of a subway train said she had falsified some third graders' state English exams, the New York City Education Department said in an internal memorandum. After the state's three-day Common Core exams in April at the Teachers College Community School in Harlem, 49-year-old Janine Worrell Breeden confided in someone. She said she had fudged answers on numerous students' tests because the kids had not finished in time. Someone then turned her in, filing a complaint with the school board. When it came time this year for the school's first round of Common Core exams, a source of anxiety across the city that has caused some educators to walk out, Worrell Breeden seemed relaxed, one mother, Diane Tinsley, told the New York Post. And then she cheated, and then she jumped in front of a train. Oh, it makes me sick! I'm so disgusted by this whole thing because it's, 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 it's the most horrible outcome of this test fetish that we have. And it's, again, it's connected to this misguided purpose about what education is. And again, look, I'm not saying tests aren't important. There was a really cool guy on Tavis Smiley. I should find a link to him, but you know what? This has already taken up enough of my Saturday. Not Saturday. It's the first day after school. We're out for Thanksgiving break, so I'm thinking it's Saturday. I kept thinking it was Friday yesterday. The movie uh, times have been updated because it's Friday. No, you're an idiot, Eric. Anyway, uh, the the point is that, yeah, we're, we're so... 
the guy on Tavis Smiley, he said, uh, yeah, we need tests to show where the kids are at, but don't blame the teachers if the kids aren't doing well enough because the teachers are working heroically to try to get the kids to do better. The question is, how do we do the most to help the teachers help the kids do better? And the point is that, look, the bigger the class sizes, the harder it is for us to help each kid. All right? I keep saying this on blue in the face. And, you know, we need the community to be involved. We need parents to be on board. There are so many things we need to help the kids do better. <sighs> anyway, Washington's blog. I don't know what that is, but anyway, they had a really interesting article called Scott Walker's Big Lie. And for those who don't know, Scott Walker is the governor of Wisconsin. He's a terrible, terrible governor, and he's kind of a doofus. And um, he ran for president, but he dropped out. <laughs> Anyway, he's talking about his Act 10. Uh, this article is talking about his Act 10, which was a law he passed that basically destroyed the unions of teachers and nurses and other public workers. So here's the article. Walker's main claim to fame regarding his record as Wisconsin's governor, inaugurated 3rd of January 2011, is that he improved education, as shown by his state's ACT test scores being now the second highest in the nation, and by their having risen since he became governor, and both of those statements are lies. Typical examples of him asserting these cardinal lies about Wisconsin's educational performance are here. His State of the State address on January 13, 2015. On top of our economic success, we empowered local school boards to hire and fire based on merit and pay based on performance. So they can keep the best and the brightest in the classroom. And it's working. Over the past four years, graduation rates are up. Third grade reading scores are up. ACT scores are up. And Wisconsin now ranks second in the country. Then his conservative political action conference speech on February 26, 2015. Our school scores are better. Our ACT scores are the second best in the country. Graduation rates up over the past four years. Reading scores are up over the past four years because we put the power back in the hands of the hardworking taxpayers and the people they elect to run their school boards. Uh, there are links to actual ACT rankings, and the article says, an accurate statement, however meaningless it might have been on this, would have been, Wisconsin now ranks 17th. Furthermore, his allegation that our school scores are better and that it's working is also a gross overstatement at best. The reality is shown here, and there's a chart. While Wisconsin's score improved by 22.2 uh, out of 22.1, or 0.45%, the nationwide score has improved by 0.00%. Scott Walker has nothing to brag about on that matter. An accurate statement on, from him on it would have been, during the four years since I became governor, Wisconsin's composite ACT scores have improved by 0.45%, whereas the nationwide change was zero, 0.00%. I just love that. That's awesome. All right, let's talk about Violet killer robots. Robotic beings rule the world. The humans are dead. No, we're not talking about killer robots because I haven't gathered any killer robot news. I'm sure there's been some, but I ain't got nothing to report, so we're just going to move right along to hip hop. I have a Twitter feed that I'm subscribed to called, not my Twitter feed, there's a Twitter feed that I'm subscribed to called Hip Hop Education, and they just passed one along. No, it wasn't through that. It was through Chuck D's Twitter feed, and someone asked him to help promote a group called Heresy, H-E-R-E-S-Y, which is these like four female MCs, and they're awesome. Their names are Carolina Dirty, Dominique LaRue, uh, and her name is a reference to the character in Harlem Nights. Awesome. Uh, my Verse, uh, I don't know who those three people are, but Moni Love is also in it. Moni Love was an awesome MC from the 80s and she's back and she did Ladies First with Queen Latifah so you may have heard her work. Anyway, they did a song called To Call Out which is awesome because it's about sort of society and police brutality and it's got this cool video. You should totally check it out. I'm going to play a little bit of it here. 
am done with the politics. Saying I don't have what it takes. I'll slow down, but none of it's common sense. Look, saying as though there wasn't no dominance and it wasn't the confidence. It's because it is ominous. The future, like I ain't got a hand in it. Like I was faking, I was posing with mannequins. No, I'm ready for the world. I open my hand again. Uh, on my job, I'm supposed to be handling. Look, the same news that you ain't wanna press play. Thinking that I'm weak and I can't fly on the expressway. Uh, a single mother, I'm surviving it for decades. So USA, I am rising up. So let's brace for the future. Getting brighter by the second, and I know that you're respected. I'm igniting my inflection. It's the the purpose emphasize until I'm breathless. You don't like it, I'll apply it to the message. And again, I'll be. Here comes my verse. Calling out the non believers, the connoisseurs, the cops of each Critics talking, but can't walk a meter. Politicians dismissing, but making pockets deeper. Grab your attention while my santo feed ya. Double standards, all these double lives. The truth can answer what may undermine. Undefined by these suckers' lines. Objectified their entire life. There comes a time where it comes to life. Like now, medics that did never get paid. TV showing us the self hate. My sister worried, trying to shed weight. Lines are blurring by the death rate. I'm tired of stereotype. When I ask me what my stereo like and how I'm blaring the mic, a vet's mom with a rookie's hunger. The trend finds what's corrupting others. Gaining haters, but they lost. Yeah. I don't see them. Too many vultures only spitting. Wrong star, devil incarnate, bastard ass blog in a bog, you sick pricks eating high off the hog. So I have to interrupt here for a second. They're talking about World Star Hip Hop, which is this website that claims to be all about hip hop and underground hip hop and helping hip hop. But what it does mostly is show like the highest rated, it's kind of like Reddit in a way, but, but what they mostly show is that the top rated things on the site are always like people fighting with each other in a Burger King or whatever, like people hurting each other, or, you know, just like nonsense, negative images of black folks. Steady selling out your own folk, wrong folk, pimping the kids, capitalistic gain of blood stains and disdain. It's insane. You ain't saying a damn thing about nothing but self-hate, police state. Benefiting from the crack you push. The youth caught up in a state of mistrust and spooks. The new shucking the job, the new loose, you too loose. The new black face f up news. Where you learn to pimp a thick from. Where you learn to flip a brick from. So, yeah, they got a lot of really good, I mean, the lyrics are just sick, and, um, yeah, I really like that group, so I hope they make an album. Um, I want to get the lyrics for that so that I can analyze it uh, in class, because I think, uh, you know, I always try to put new MCs in front of students that they never heard of, and especially if it's women, because women are vastly underrepresented in the world of hip-hop, but... That's it. Let's talk about a quote of the week. Friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Stop repenting because the end of this near. But don't Business. panic. You can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention. You got to listen to hear. Wait out for me. All right, so this week we're going to use... Uh, it's not... Uh, okay, this is from Adbusters um, because... Friday is two things. The Friday after Thanksgiving in the United States is two things. First of all, it's Black Friday where stores have these crazy sales and people camp out in front of Best Buy and it's just a disgrace because eventually people get so tense and angry and irritable from camping out in front of these stores in order to save $50 on a DVD player or whatever that they end up like fighting with each other over waffle irons or threatening to stab each other. It's just so sad. So anyway, uh, long ago when Black Friday first started, uh, this artist named, what's his name? I just had his name. His name was Ted Dave. Uh, he founded it in Vancouver, 
and uh, Adbusters came along and started promoting it heavily. So Buy Nothing Day is February, uh, excuse me, November 27th, 2015, and their page says this. As the year-end approaches, keep in mind that an object will never make you happy. It might for a few minutes, maybe even days, but in the end, your experiences are all you've got. So this year, why not get your family together and do something wildly different? Ignore Black Friday. Try buying almost nothing for Christmas, and you might experience the most joyous holiday season you've ever had. Buy nothing and experience everything. So there you go. There's my advice, people. Uh, take a break from all the consumerism and spend time with the people you care about and just enjoy your time off and, and stop thinking that buying more things will bring you happiness. Now, if you'll excuse me, i got to go check in on the Steam sale. Hypocrisy. Anyway, that's it. End of the show, people. The end. Show notes and links to everything in this podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, fbesp.org slash synapse. Uh, my website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other cool stuff. Um, Yeah. Uh, so shout outs this week to you for listening. Thank you. And to the Duchess for being awesome. And for Megan for giving me a heads up on Facebook and thanking me for getting my gift. Not everybody that I send cross stitch stuff to has been so kind. Uh, anyway, also thanks to people who have been really supportive about my teaching book, including I Pete, Rich Webster, Deborah King, Matt Thompson, Lawrence Levine, and lots of other people. Thank you for the support. Everybody who, uh, asked for this new syncast to come out. I don't remember exactly who it was. I think it was Ian W. Uh, uh, on Facebook when I said happy birthday he said how about a syncast to celebrate my birthday so uh, if I got your name wrong I'm sorry but thank you very much for your support and for asking for this the more I hear from people who want to hear from me the more likely I am to do these so uh, I don't always instantly do one as soon as someone asks for it but it does feel good to know that people are interested in hearing what I have to say about all this stuff I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing so I apologize in advance if there's dumb stuff I forgot to cut out I'm a very busy man deal with it listen I don't have time to play with the phone here I got a lot of stuff I got to get done Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with me with feedback or questions. You can email me at esp at fbesp.org, or you can tweet me at Duke Scath. I will stop talking now. Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. Dude, I totally made it under an hour. Yeah! See, if I can do it like this, I'm much more likely to do more episodes in the future. Thanks for listening. Have a good night. Or afternoon or whatever.